Julia, I did this uh, thing once that stretches your back. Okay. And you lay back all the way down, and you're basically like upside down. Uh huh. And I think I got the feeling of what it's like to be the type of animal that <laughs> we're interviewing today. <laughs> you know what, Anya? As I think about it, you actually have a couple things in common with bats. You know, I feel like you come out at night. That's like when you're at your most active. You know, you like nibbling on little snacks and kind of fluttering around. And as I discovered, you know, in this conversation, um, bats are also, they're kind of maternal and loving. And so that reminded me of you too. Oh, interesting. Well, that's very kind. Thank you. I thought the snacks and the coming out at night and uh, just meandering around uh, was a reference to me smoking weed a lot. So <laughs> I'm, uh, <laughs> I mean, you are a little batty, but I think everyone's figured that out by what is this episode 25? <laughs> um, well, I am bummed that I did not get to join this conversation again. Um, but I'm excited to hear how you did, and then I'll I'll let you know. I'll I'll leave it in the reviews on uh, Spotify and iTunes. Cool. All right. Well, <laughs> Leslie and I are going to take it ourselves from here. Well, you know, to kick it off, you know, Leslie, welcome to the show. Welcome to Furfluencers. We are so excited to have you here and to learn a little bit more about you. You know, your background and the Virginia Bat Rescue. And I guess to get started, you know, tell us, who are you? You know, who are you and how did you get interested in bats? Well, um, I am just an average human being. Um, and I have a background as full-blown nature nerd. I grew up um, in my backyard exploring whatever moved or grew. or um, So I've always just been fascinated with animals and had a house full of pets growing up. And then as I got older, um, I, well, I ended up being a ne'er-do-well teenager, as many of us are. But then I, I when I went to college and um, I um, just decided that I really just was done, I was done with school at that point. But you know what's funny is I have continued my education through all sorts of both traditional and non-traditional learning. So every opportunity I get to go to a conference or um, you know, just tag along with somebody out in the field doing really neat biology stuff. I will do that. And I find that has been a really rewarding way to learn about the animals that I love so much. And that's not just bats. That's whatever I have the opportunity to go hang out and learn about. Right. It sounds like you are a true animal lover in that respect. And I love that image of if somebody as a young kid sort of out in their backyard and whether it's creepy crawlies or birds, squirrels, you know, what have you, just having that sort of love and appreciation for those animals. Yeah, I think that is something that um, we might be losing touch with um, as humans and as our worlds become more, um, I, I don't want to say they're, they're smaller because our world isn't smaller at all, um, but it's just so much more human-centered. Um, so many of us are like inside and we're inside at school and we're inside at our jobs and we're inside when we go home because we have so much to do. And I think taking that time to really get outside and, and be able to be immersed in nature is something that 
people are losing. And I don't mean just children. I mean, adults too, because I talk to people who, um, you know, they just don't choose to go outside anymore. And I think that's a loss. I think we need that time in nature because it centers us or, or more to the point, it takes us out of ourselves. Um, Definitely. Yeah. Sort of confronts you with other things to think about and you sort of realize where you fit into those things as well. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I think that, you know, we get so kind of wrapped up in like, you know, I got to vacuum the floor and then I got to pick so-and-so up and then we have an appointment over here and and all that stuff. And it gets very, um, it's like you have this constant cacophony going on in your head of all the stuff you're not doing that you should be doing. And if you just go outside and watch a bird picking bugs off a branch, that's just all of a sudden your brain just is like, ah, that's a really lovely thing to watch happen. And I think that's, it's just good for us. And whether you believe in souls or not, it's good for for us as humans to not lose that ability to connect with what's going on outside. And with that in mind and bringing it back to the bats, you know, unless they're in your house, I don't always think of bats as being an easily accessible creature to most people. So like, tell me a little bit more, like, how were you experiencing bats either as, you know, a a kid or in your adult life? How did you encounter them? Was it outside or were they living, you know, in the eaves of your home? No, uh, as a matter of fact, I don't recall bats being anything other than, you know, somebody be like, oh, look, there are bats. You know, it was just sort of a, a thing that happened. And I don't remember as a child having a particular affinity for them. I really came to it um, as an adult, I came to bats. And I think the way bats become accessible to people is through learning about them more so than encountering. Like, you know, everybody's found a nestling blown out of a nest or a bunnies in the yard or, you know, things that are in our reach in our, our daytime realm. Um, so you are absolutely right. It's very hard for bats to be accessible, but I think that's also part of the draw. It's like, here's something that you don't see every day. <laughs> you know, they're not they're not robins or cardinals or something. It's like almost something you have to seek out more knowledge of. But you can certainly stand outside at dusk if you're aware of when to look up and see what bats are doing. And so sort of right now, one of my goals is to actually help people do that, like take them places where they can see what bats are doing. Um, Sometimes that's a little difficult because it can be dark and we might not be able to see them, but now we have technology that kind of gives us insight into their their, um, ultrasonic world, into their night activities. So that's kind of cool too. It is cool. And for me, I think just in my psyche, bats have always kind of bridged this divide for me between, you know, the typical sort of nature as we experience it, the squirrels, the starlings, et cetera, but then this almost mythical type of creature as well. You know, they are more hidden. They are more accessible. It's hard to look at them. They move so quickly and, you know, tend to hide. And, you know, we've spoken to guests on the show about Loch Ness monsters and unicorns and truly mythical creatures. But I feel like bats, they have such an interesting history to them, yet we can actually experience them in our day-to-day lives. That's a really good point because there is this intersection between the unbelievable and the believable with bats. Like sometimes it's really hard to pull people into, you know, these are just flying mammals. 
and I, I by just I don't mean they're diminished. I just mean that the you know they aren't imbued with mythical powers. They can't fly around giving everyone rabies. They can't you know suck all the blood out of your body and disappear into the night. You know they can't do a lot of the things that they've sort of been imbued with that just aren't based in reality. But they are like this super cool little flying mammal that is really smart and inhabits this very real world that we're not part of. So, yeah, I I think that is a really interesting intersection there. And they've obviously lent themselves to that mythology because they are like sort of the in-between. And even if you look at some of the cultural histories uh, surrounding like, you know, bat lore and bat traditions, um, some of them are like, you know, either guardians of the underworld or um, help the passage to the underworld. Hmm. So, yeah, really interesting stuff, especially when you um, like Central and South American traditions of surrounding bats, or, you know, native cultures, traditions surrounding bats. And even um, North American in the uh, Southwest, there's some really cool sort of bat lore. I didn't realize that. I'm going to stick a, a pin in that one and we'll, we'll definitely come back to it. But I want to go back to you because okay. you've been able to engage with bats in a really special way through the Virginia Bat Rescue. You know, tell me what is your, your involvement you know, with the rescue and what is the rescue? You know, what, what do you do? Well, um, we started primarily because I didn't want to go to grad school <laughs> and traipse around the countryside tripping over myself with a Yagi antenna, looking for random things in the woods. So um, I learned about wildlife rehabilitation, and that is a process where orphaned and injured animals come in and rehabilitators um, either help them recover from the injuries or rear the orphans and then return them to the wild. So it's uh, you have to be trained, you have to have permits, you know, you just can't go take a bunny and raise it and let it go. You have to know what you're doing so that these animals become what they're meant to be. But there aren't any barriers to doing that as long as you are willing to get the training and are willing to be open to learning and following a lot of laws. <laughs> but um, but it is a very intimate way of dealing with wildlife. So I've seen bats from, you know, angry adults who've tangled with a car or a cat to itty bitty little orphans who um, have somehow gotten lost from their mother and are unable to, you know, raise themselves. So I get to do that. So it's, um, and this is true of any of the animals that people rehabilitate, wild animals that people rehabilitate, that it's a very individual animal focused thing, whereas traditional biology is a very population level thing. So um, it's a it's a different way of interacting with wildlife. Do you remember so, the first bat that you got to rescue? I do. I do. Ooh. Well let me Tell well us. let me step back from that a little bit because before I even rescued any bat, I got trained. And I was trained by Batworld Sanctuary in Texas. Um, they used to do this thing called Batworld Boot Camp, which they don't do anymore um, for probably what will be obvious reasons. It was a like a practically 80 hours a week of nothing but bats. It was lectures all morning and then bat handling all afternoon into the evening and different kinds of bats. And it was really, really thorough. Um, and you had to travel to their facility and it, it was wonderful. So... I got, I was so enamored of it. So those are like the 
first bats that I actually handled were during that. And then um, I became a regional rescue center for them. And that went on for about 10 years. <laughs> so the first bat I rescued independently was at, um, through what we um, were called then, it was Bat World Nova. And it was just a phone call of somebody who said, you know, I found all these baby bats in my house. And something had happened and the, the mothers had abandoned the roost or had been, oftentimes it's because someone has separated mothers from pups inadvertently or purposefully. So I ended up with eight big brown bat orphans and those were my first rescues. It was pretty cool. <laughs> That's amazing. What did you do for them? You know, you, you arrive, you, you get the bats, like where do you go? What happens? Well, you go home. <laughs> you, you have to have a dedicated place either in your home or a separate, like now we've advanced to a point where I'm actually sitting in a separate building that is devoted to the bats. But back then it was a room in my basement that was separate from your human living quarters. And, you know, I was already all set up because of my training. So, you know, you have to take them home. You have to get them into either an incubator or something like that. So you can maintain their temperature and then you, you feed them. Mostly with orphans, there's a lot of feeding. And bat pups, depending on their age, they generally need to be fed every three hours around the clock. And are they getting formula? It's bugs? a formula. Okay. No, they um, because they're mammals and because of the way they grow up, they're entirely dependent on their mothers. The mom doesn't bring food to them. She just nurses them until they're old enough to start flying on their own. And then they follow her around to kind of learn the ropes. They can figure it out if you give them enough time and safety, but it's very helpful to have mom around to you know, be like, yeah, we don't eat those or come over here. This is better hunting or whatever. So um, we are trying to parent an animal that's completely unrelated to us and with which we can't really communicate. So it, it's, a, it's a tall order, but we feed them and try to our best to keep them healthy. And then as they get older, we transition—excuse me transition them into appropriately sized housing so that they can start using their wings. And then they go into a flight area so they can be outside and practice hunting and echolocating and do all that batty stuff. And generally, by the time they're ready to go, they've turned into fairly hateful teenagers and you know, they're just like, I don't like you. You dress funny. I need to get out of here. And then they go. I get it. Yeah. Makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> and they take off. And this might be a, a, a dumb question, but do they exist in communities once they leave their their siblings and their mom? Do they find mates or other companions? Is it a flock like it can be with birds? It is a really, depending on the species. Now, one thing I, I do have to point out is that just here in Virginia alone, we have 17 different species. Oh, my goodness. Um, I didn't realize yeah, that. In, in, yeah, in, in the United States, it's 48 or so species. So it's not like bats are not bats. There's big brown bats and little brown bats and eastern red bats and hoary bats and silver-haired bats. And so you have to know each species and its natural history. And so with big brown bats, which are the ones we get most often. They're a highly social species and they live in these colonies that grow over time, primarily through the young sticking around. And those will be mostly the females. Because the females, you could call them single moms, except they live with a whole bunch of other moms. So they're like 
they take care of their own babies, um, but they're living with a whole bunch of other female bats. And so they have this, what we call colonial support. But in the studies they've done on bat social structure, big brown bat social structure, it's um, really similar to what crows do mm. um, and humans and elephants, where you've got like a big social group. And then within that social group, there might be some family units or there's like just a bunch of friends who hang around together and they just prefer each other's company and those will form a colony. And then when they have kids, they'll stick together. Um, so they've looked at relatedness between the females in a lot of these colonies. And there are some, yeah, they can be related, but they seem to have roost mates that they prefer to stick around with. And those may not be related at all. This is so charming. They really, so they have personalities even within, because it sounds like there are different personalities for different species, but can you have then different personalities within a species? Absolutely. We have timid bats. We have brave bats. We have funny bats. I mean, they are, like, if you think about, you know, 17 cats, not one of those cats is going to be like the other cat, right? So bats are just like that, or dogs, you know, it's a, it's a mammal thing, you know, um, it's probably true of a lot of other mammals. We just don't recognize it as readily. But with with mammals, you know, you are going to have some who are like, are going to be the first one coming to get food or, you know, are going to hang back and watch everybody else until they think it's fine. And then maybe they'll go throw everybody else out and take over. So, I mean, there's just a lot of different ways they deal with the world. And it probably has a great impact on survivability in the wild. What constitutes a funny bat? As soon as you said that, I was like, I'm so curious what makes a bat funny. And is it funny to us? Or do you think other bats in that community also kind of recognize humor? I mean, maybe they don't know what humor is, but like, can a bat entertain other bats in a way that seems to not be for survival? It's like play. Well, play is pretty well established in all mammals and goes all the way, like reptiles have been demonstrated with play. So we know that play is really important. I think when I like funny is probably funny for us watching them, but whether they're being funny to each other, I'm sure it's there. We just don't know. Um, I see most of their, what appear to be play behaviors happening after they're a little bit older and they like chase each other around, um, particularly after they start flying, you'll see a lot of like, you know, sort of skirmishes and, um, or, you know, they, they tend to follow, like young ones will follow each other into the most ridiculous situations. <laughs> so, um, but I, I do think there's a lot of social interaction that we're not privy to because it all happens up high and after dark. So as a rehabilitator, I do get to see them interacting with each other. Mostly what jumps out is that they get annoyed at each other really quickly. Um, you beat me to my next question. I was going to ask, you know, I'm imagining living in a very large group environment. I'm just trying to think like, you know, with my own family, it's a small environment and now adding some more people, et cetera. You know, sometimes feelings get hurt. There are misunderstandings. Does that also happen in the bat world? I feel like that is a lot of what goes on because they also, so if you imagine that social group, that's your family plus a bunch of other people and you're all living touching each other. <laughs> so if you look at a bat colony, you will notice that they are almost 
all in contact with each other one way or another. So there's a lot of like, you know, um, you're in my spot. I want to move my wing. You know, that just, it feels, it feels like that. And that's um, actually is borne out a little bit by science because there was a paper that came out. And then I think the media coverage of it, the headlines were something along the lines of scientists have figured out what bats are talking about and mostly they're arguing. And it seemed like the thing that came through the to me the most was like, and I was like, yeah, that sounds about right, was get off my foot. <laughs> and, <laughs> That's incredible. So <laughs> those little high-pitched squeaks that we'll sometimes hear, is that they're saying like, get off my foot, you're touching me. Mom, yeah, mom is touching me. Probably. There's, um, there's also some, if you're near mothers with pups, it's really quiet. So it's one of those things that I think that probably even our acoustic technology doesn't pick up on because we're really geared into what they're doing ultrasonically. But as far as audible stuff, what you will hear is I call it lullabies and I have no idea if that's really what it is, but this really sweet, quiet sort of sing-songy vocalizations that go on. Um, and I that to me is like mother and offspring bonding and possibly other females in the colony, you know, sort of sharing in that um, talking to the kids bit. And I have no idea what information they're transferring through that, but it's, it's comforting to me, (laughs) but I don't, yeah. I think that as, as people, as our technology gets better and we've been gotten really good at being able to record their ultrasound and figure out what they're doing out there just through sound. I actually was listening to a seminar fairly recently where they were talking about now being able to recognize what are social calls in the sort of ultrasonic repertoire. And a lot of those social calls also have an audible component that we can pick up. So now, rather than just looking at like the um, ultrasonic acoustic component of what bats are doing now, um, People are sort of trying to look at that sort of part of the spectrum that's like just at the top of our hearing. And they seem to be finding that there's a fair amount of communication going on there with many different bats. So that's kind of cool. But it's sort of a new. Yeah. And and it's like technology is just catching up with bats. So now we're sort of getting more windows (laughs) into what they're doing. Oh, wow, that's amazing. And, okay, so I have to ask, where are the dads in these bat communities? I'm hearing <laughs> a lot about how awesome the moms are and the pups sound like they're a lot of fun. Where where did the, the male bats go? Do they just get kicked out of these colonies? I think it really depends on the species, but for most of ours, it does seem like the males are not a big presence during maternity season. We have a new species that's showing up here in Virginia, um, and it's not new to North America, but it's just new to me mm, and rehabilitators. Right. And it, um, from what the folks who work with this species a lot say that the males do stay in the colonies, um, the maternity colonies. So they seem to have a, a different social structure. But um, for our locals, definitely the males do not appear to be part of the summer rearing season. And they have a super important job to do, though. They stay out eating bugs and probably are just hanging around fairly close to the colonies. 
But when the colonies break up in late summer and early fall, and the females are going to move and make their way toward wherever they're planning on spending the winter, that's when the males get super active because our bats actually mate in the fall. And then the female holds onto the fertilized ovum or ova, depending on the species. And she doesn't start her pregnancy until spring. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, it's so like, she's got a little bit of a holiday. You know, she's had a great fall. <laughs> now she's going to take the winter, hang out, eat some, you know, warm weather bugs, and then, you know, become a mom in the spring. Yeah, so it's a great way if you deal with either hibernation or if you're going to like migrate to Florida or something. So they're not trying to, um, you know, deal with having a baby while they're also either moving across great parts of the landscape or, you know, hanging out in a cave for three, four months. So it's it's a, it's a cool strategy. And there's um, a lot of that in like, so bats in general, they're the second largest group of mammals on the planet. There's 14, over 1,400 species. So like one in every five mammal species is some kind of a bat. So there's a lot of diversity. So it's very hard to be like, oh, bats do this or bats do that because 1,400 species, somebody's doing something really different. <laughs> of course, right, with anything else. But I, yeah, I just did not realize the scope of the bat world. I mean, even just here in North America. And then within that, I didn't, I mean, it makes sense. They're mammals. They're smart. They have to survive. So there has to be complexity and intelligence there. But just how structured, organized, and fun they are. It's sort of a new way of thinking about them. It it is. And I think that's one of the things that really drew me to bats early on is that they are complex and they are really misunderstood. Um, I think there's this perception of bats as like they're, A, they're this monolithic group of dark things that fly around at night and do bad things. And, you know, they're not any of that, but they, um, because we don't see them, we don't know them, it's easy to sort of compartmentalize them into that, you know, ah, bugs and, you know, whatever. And, you know, I always, I always try to bring people back to it's like, they're mammals, anything a cat or a dog can do, a bat can do plus maybe a little bit more. So um, it, it's it's hard to get people, particularly people who aren't fans of wildlife, to kind of shed some of those negative associations. Right, cross that, whatever divide it is that they've got between them and the animal, getting them over that is is tricky. But I have to say, due to the incredible amount of work that um, like Bat Conservation International has done, Bat World Sanctuary, Merlin Tuttle, who started, um, he's like the granddaddy of, you know, publicizing how cool bats are. Because of that, in, in the 20 years that I've been doing this, there's been a sea change in people's attitudes towards bats. So much more sympathy, so much more, you know, like, oh, they're cool. Oh, we need them. They do good things. So that really has, I mean, I'm not saying that the, ooh, they're horrible isn't still there, but it is much reduced. And I think well, even a lot of- mm-hmm. Just the presence of your organization. I mean, the presence of Virginia Bat Rescue. And when I was doing research on different rescues, a lot of them came up and it occurred to me that is this a new thing that people care enough to pick up a phone and call somebody and say, hi, I found a bat that's hurt. Whereas maybe 
you know, previous times, and I don't know what that time frame looks like, you would know better than me, but people wouldn't even bother to do that. And not only would they not bother, but they would actively like try to hurt them because they were considered to be so awful and so bad. And there were even like entire agencies like animal control departments and, um, you know, that any bat, any bat, regardless of what it was doing, would be sacrificed to be tested for rabies. Even if it was just a bat hanging out in a tree and hadn't been anywhere near a person, it would just get tested for rabies. And, you know, and that sort of stuff really has stopped. And, you know, then we had white nose syndrome hit in um, 2006, 2007. And I mean, that's taken out 90% of Virginia's cave hibernating bats. And, and for folks who don't know what it is, what is that? Well, it appears to be a fungus that, well, it is a fungus um, that was, it appears to have been introduced from elsewhere. And for some reason, it is pathogenic to North American bats. If they are hibernating in an effective affected cave, the fungus starts growing on them and causes all sorts of metabolic issues and they don't survive. So it's been awful. And, you know, I always say that, Jesus, 7 million robins turned up dead on the eastern seaboard. People would know about it and there'd be a lot of, um, you know, there'd be a lot of action going on. And I still, to this day, run into people who are like, I've never heard of that. What is it? So, and I mean, this is like the country's largest wildlife disease that affects multiple species. Now, it may now be overshadowed overshadowed by um, highly pathogenic avian influenza, but I mean, but this is a big, huge thing that happened. And people just, again, we've lost that connection. We're not paying attention to what's going on outside. We've forgotten how important it is. And then how something like that happened to a nocturnal animal that people don't see and, you know, and they die in the caves. It's been a really invisible thing. And um, but people who do know about it, definitely an amped up sympathy and people's recognition that these are animals that need some conservation help. But that storytelling is so important. And, you know, in terms of how your rescue helps folks, you know, you mentioned the the pups, those first you know, pups that you got to help take care of. What are some common calls that you get? And then, you know, what does it usually look like for a rescuer or a rehabilitator to then come in and you know, try to try to bring support and resources to those calls? Well, we generally, um, the calls come in and anymore it's text, honestly. We're like, don't call me, send me a picture. <laughs> so, and that, that actually has been a huge help. Um, but people generally, you know, they report. And we want to know, you know, is there a situation that we maybe have a colony and you can just get that baby back to its mom? Um, and so then that, that causes people to have a different kind of an interaction with a wild animal when you're talking about renesting and reunion. And people are often pretty sympathetic to that because, you know, nobody wants to think about a mom's lost her baby or, you know, an orphan baby wandering around and crying for its mother. So oftentimes we get, we get help that way. Um, there are situations where, these little orphans turn up and no one has any idea where the colony is. Um, And then some of our bats, like red bats, don't even live in colonies. So if you find the baby, you know you're not finding the mother. So, you know, then we talk people through how to safely contain them. And then, 
usually as a rehabilitator, you don't have the luxury of running out onto the world to go get things because you're kind of busy feeding things. So we have a, a loose network of volunteers we refer to as transporters. And if they're available, they'll often go get the animal from the member of the public or the public just brings it. And that's very nice because, you know, finding a thing isn't really rescuing a thing. <laughs> Getting it to help is rescuing a thing. So, um, and a lot of people are happy to help. Um, and then, so from there, then, like we were talking about earlier, we set them up for feeding and then try to raise them through to release. If it's an injury situation, though, we're very lucky that we partner with the Wildlife Center of Virginia, who, that's just down the road in Waynesboro. And, um, they provide our vet work. So a lot of times things will actually go to them first. If something's injured, there's really no point in bringing it to me for me to drive it there. If it can go straight there and then can get the, you know, the medication, the triage, and sometimes things are really broken and they're suffering and that needs to stop. So there's, there's a fair amount of euthanasia involved with wildlife rescue, but you know, that's a kindness we can offer them. So they're not oh, out of course. there. I mean, yeah. especially just the concept of a wing and thinking of all the ways where that can go wrong and th get caught and tangled. And it, uh, it's upsetting to think yeah. about, honestly. It, it is. It's, and if you imagine, so our biggest bat weighs just over an ounce. Our smallest bat weighs four grams. Oh, my which, goodness. Yeah. Teeny. So, teeny tiny. So, I mean, I always like to try and find nice analogies for weight and a gummy bear weighs about three grams. So, you know, these are small, small animals. And you imagine what happens when there's a collision between an animal that size and a car. It's not going to go well, you know, and sometimes they survive because they've just been clipped or something or, um, you know, and, and the other big thing that happens to bats on the landscape is domestic cats. There's a lot of damage done by our beloved cats, um, they, they don't understand that, you know, bats and birds and baby bunnies aren't there for them to play. They don't know. So we should be working really hard to make sure our cats aren't causing this level of damage out there on the landscape. And I can't tell you, like, the most horrific um, animal, that one of the most, I've seen a lot of horrible stuff, but it was a, a lactating female bat whose stomach had been punctured by the tooth of a cat. So she had to be euthanized because there was no way to fix that. But that there were two babies out there somewhere that we were never going to find. So it's, you know, I think thinking about what those downstream costs are to our presence and the things we bring with us um, can be overwhelming at times, but also something to think about. Like if you're driving down a country road on a, warm summer night and the bugs are flying really close to the road, that's when you want to slow down and look for bats in your headlights because they're there. Um, you know, maybe think about taking that outdoor cat and making that an indoor kitty. And plus it's better for the cats. Honestly, it's fun. I have two. They stay indoors. They yeah, there, there are fewer ticks inside, fewer things to oh get my gosh. stuck in. And no cars, no dogs. I mean, it's just, it's delightful. Um, and, you know, well, 
my cats are very spoiled. We have huge windows and lots of bird feeders. <laughs> so they're highly entertained. <laughs> but anyway, but I mean, and I'm not, I don't want to pick on cats in particular because there's tons of stuff, you know, open buckets of oil, you know, in pole barns where bats roost. There, there's a problem that, so I think if we just think a little bit about how our actions are being carried out, um, you know, in our, in our, if you can keep your little square of the world pretty safe, then if everybody's or most everybody's thinking about keeping their little square pretty safe, then I think we're doing something really important. You know, um, I say keep your keep your little piece of the world clean and green and you're helping so many things that you don't even know about. You know, I noticed that from your online, your social media presence, which you, know, you do have, you are clearly a source of education and information for the bat community. And so I feel like you, know, you are, you know, this conversation, the conversations that you have over text or over the phone with folks who find injured bats. And then we think about the presence that you have on your website, your social media, you know, there are ways for people to learn about how they can help you know, better take care of bats and maybe some commonly asked questions. I'm curious, you know, when you engage with folks either like me or on social media, you know, folks to reach out to you, are there any common questions that you get asked about bats, either fun questions or ones that you feel like really indicate a huge misunderstanding of what they are? Well, that latter part is much reduced. Um, I think the biggest issues, like disease issues, we used to be, that would be the first thing out of everybody's mouth is what about rabies? Is their poop toxic? Um, and uh, so, you know, I think there's a more of an understanding about like rabies transmission and, you know, you have to have some physical contact with an animal before you're going to get rabies. Um, so I always joke with people, it's like, well, did you kiss it? Um, or, you know, have you been licking it? And, you know, those kinds of like, you know, trying to use humor. <laughs> That's it, great. You know, because there's just some common sense stuff, but people don't get taught that. I mean, if you go on the internet, what are you going to see? Oh, a bat can bite you and you don't know it. Well, it's like under what circumstances? You know, you can't just be walking out there in a parking lot and bats are biting you and you don't know it. I mean, you know, it's just like this sort of like um, helping people kind of think in a more common sense manner. So those are those are big things we deal with. Um, I get a lot of surprising a lot of people. And I'm hoping that anybody who's listening to this who has felt this anxiety knows that they're not alone, but there really are people out there who have managed to convince themselves that they felt something brush against them in the night and it had to have been a bat. And then their brains just go into this, oh my God, have I been exposed to rabies? What do I need to do? And they talk to their doctors and the public health departments and they're like, no, you know, you don't need to worry about it. Well, they're still worried about it. So somehow or another, they find us bat people. And we're the ones who can talk about behavior. And I think that's really sort of an unrecognized but pretty common service we do for people is that um, we just talk to them about what bats actually do and what bats are out there in the night doing. You know, they're not flying around looking for people to bite. You know, they're out there eating bugs and, you know, you can walk safely. So I think that, you know, it's a double-edged sword of social media where people are going and, you know, hearing other like crazy stories or they're reading all the 
amped up, you know, horror stories or fear mongering that's just so prevalent now. So there's the hat that we do. Um, We do work a lot with the rehab community. Um, We do like I, I present at rehabilitation conferences and training and lectures. And then, you know, I, I go to a lot of, you know, garden clubs and master naturalist chapters and those sorts of things to do education, schools, libraries. I mean, we really try to hit all the audiences. We, I'm a firm believer in that bats are not just for children. Um, and I think that connect is people have gotten it into their heads like you only need to take the kids to the nature center when they're little well no you need to be going to the nature center all the time even as a girl yeah of course it i'm a little biased i was a park naturalist as professional park naturalist for my (laughs) career but but yeah i mean those those sorts of um connections again the connections and getting accurate information and not allowing yourself to be distracted by the chatter that's so readily accessible. For and us. those weird touches in the night. I mean, I have a lot of questions about that, but that might be a completely separate conversation. I mean, is it mice or are people just ghosts or are people getting, you know, weird, fake nighttime nerve twitches or something? It's like, oh my gosh, something touched me. I think it's more like um, a lot of people walk their dogs at dusk. Um, some people go, you know, that's the only time they have to go for a little walk after work. And I think that, you know, there are, there are insects out there, leaves blow by. And oh, I, I see it's think, outside. It's not in their beds. Oh, 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 well, no, not all. Mostly it's outside. <laughs> but mid- <laughs> yes, inside has been another, um, but you know, and, and so like, just, just knowing that a bat has to land on something as big as a human in order to bite is helpful for people. That they can't, like they can't, they don't spit rabies <laughs> or any other disease and they can't take their teeth out and throw them at you. You know, so there's the, the whole like the physics of how an animal operates in the world is a really cool thing that we can help people understand. Because again, bats really, yeah, people, when you say, oh, you know, their wings are their hands, and then, you know, it's like, well, well how does that work? So it's, I, I mean, in a way, it's sort of a cool, it's a cool insight into humans. You know, I, I get it to is. see them. Yeah, I mean, there are parts of people that I know, I just didn't even know that people could think the way people think. And so it's kind of a neat insight. It's a very neat insight. It weirdly kind of leads me to my next question is, um, how do we feel about Batman? Mm. We think Batman is a good ambassador for connecting people of, you know, more ages, backgrounds to bats, or do we think that Batman has reinforced stereotypes of bats that we want to move away from? I actually think it's, in modern times, been pop. Positive. I think that, you know, Ben Affleck uh, partnered with some group. Sorry about my computer. Hang on, I'll restart that. So Ben Affleck partnered with a conservation group to paint bathhouses and have them installed. So um, 
I, I don't think it's been a terrible thing. And just, I want to say yesterday, or maybe it was, this, there's a, na- a national Batman day, which of course I knew nothing about until I started seeing the social media posts. But a lot of people went out and painted their bat boxes with Batman logos. And I, I kind of think the original Dark Knight thing really was sort of clued into that whole transitional bit we talked about earlier. And that here's the animals that do inhabit this sort of two realms. And so I think the original Dark Knight stuff was actually pretty spot on. And I I don't think it's been bad. I mean, I personally am a fan, so I'm glad to hear that. (laughs) Glad to hear that Batman is doing his part for the bats. Yeah, you know, it'd be really cool if, you know, there was some better representation of bats in the actual movies, but then Hollywood. (laughs) But, you know, I don't think, I don't think Hollywood, most of Hollywood has actually seen a real bat to actually know how to represent them. And, I mean, I love watching really bad bat movies because, I was going to ask you that. Like, are you able to, like, Halloween's (laughs) coming up. Are you going to be watching the horror films and are you cheering on the bats? Are you cringing at how the bats are portrayed? Are they even portrayed correctly? They're never portrayed correctly. I've never seen any animal that's as prone to changing sizes, you know, in in a single scene. It's like, well, how did it go from a three-foot animal to a, you know, 12-inch? And even a 12-inch wingspan is like, you know, pretty massive for most of our bats. But anyway, I I mean, I, I can't watch horror movies anymore because my imagination is way too fertile and that sticks with me. But um, but as far as like the, you know, bats and those sorts of movies, I, you know, for the same, you watch them for the same reason. You watch Sharknado. You don't expect, you know what to expect and you don't expect a lot, but you know, you'll have a few scenes. You can have a great time picking apart. Love the Sharknado reference. I think it's the first (laughs) one we've had on the show so far. (laughs) And it's about time. (laughs) Well, you know, what's really funny. Sharks have actually sort of helped us out because, um, the whole Shark Week thing got people who do bat stuff really interested in. And I had a a young, um, she was our she was our blogger, she was our youth blogger, and she wrote a feature called the Batter Day News every Saturday for us. And she was like, "Why isn't there a Bat Week? How come sharks have a week and bats don't have a week?" And then you know, I think a lot of other people were having similar thoughts. And so we actually do have an international bat week now. I don't think Discovery's picked up on it, but, the, you know, there, there's a consortium that's like Canada, the U.S., Mexico, that does bat stuff the last week of October. Amazing. Well, we'll have to have tag Discovery in this interview. They should definitely give it a listen because there's good content here. I think so. And I, I think there are plenty of really amazing people out there doing amazing bat stuff. And you could totally fill a week with bat programming. <laughs> Leslie, this has been so awesome. You know, I want to be mindful of your time and we've had you on for a little while. But, you know, as we start to wrap it up, you know, what are some things that folks can do in their local community to best support, you know, the bat populations? I'm sorry, and, you just dropped out. So oh, yeah, that's okay. Can that? you hear me now? Yes. Okay, awesome. Yeah, I was saying, you know, as we as we start to wind down the conversation, what are some things that folks can do, you know, at their house, in their neighborhoods to help bats? And then what's the best way for someone who's listening to this who says, 
you know, wow, I, I love what Leslie's doing. I love what Virginia Bat's doing. How can I help support the Virginia Bat Rescue? So um, first off, if you're looking for us, um, it is virginiabats.org, but our full name is Bat Conservation and Rescue of Virginia. So um, you can look us up and follow us. But if people um, want to get involved with, can you say what the first part of that was again? I got completely discombobulated. No, no, you're great. <laughs> um, how can people help the bats in their immediate environment, whether it's their gotcha. house or their neighborhood? Gotcha. Okay, so helping your bats, and when I say yours, we all understand they, they belong to the earth. Wildlife doesn't belong to anyone in particular, but if you think of them as like, you know, your responsibility, your charges, um, and start thinking about keeping your personal space as friendly as possible, that would be um, reducing use of pesticides, reducing the size of a lawn of monoculture grasses, because we need the insect diversity, not just for the bats, but for the birds and the predatory bugs and skunks and foxes and all that things that eat bugs. So we really need to encourage insect diversity. Um, and the other thing you can do is uh, have a nice little water feature and that won't draw in all the bats, but some of our smaller bats have been seen using bird baths as a water source. Um, if you can have a small pond and can deal with mosquitoes, um, that's another great thing to do. And then um, cutting outdoor light. I know everybody thinks that bats like to hunt around lights, but only a few do. Most of them don't like high ambient light levels. And the amount of light pollution that we're sending up into the sky is affecting bat migration, bird migrations, um, all kinds of things that uh, even insects, again, a lot of insects are being driven away by the light spectrum that we're currently using to light public spaces or our own backyard. So if you're not going outside at night, you don't need to light up your backyard. You can have a security light that only comes on for motion. Um, you can point any outdoor lighting down toward the ground so it's not leaking up into the sky. There's all kinds of great things you can do to mitigate um, lighting outside. And also, it's really good for you because then your night vision gets better. And when your night vision gets better, you can see all kinds of cool things happening at night, like bats flying around. It, it's just good all the way around. So that's personal space. And then I think, you know, supporting conservation efforts in general. If you go out there and help with stream cleanups, cave gating, pulling invasive plants, any of the stuff that goes on every weekend, wherever you are, there is something going on. So you can help. And helping feels good. It does. Those are very tangible things. And hey, you know, the added benefit for me being able to see at night outside is I'll probably trip over fewer uh, <laughs> things in my yard. <laughs> I tell you, it is like to go out at night and not even take a flashlight and feel comfortable is pretty special. I mean, people around you will be like, oh, my God, are you all right? I can see fine. And you get to see the stars, which is stars like we used to. But um, and then just some other things that I think are super helpful for most people, even very young people, is there are all levels of volunteerism you can engage in. 
there. You know, you could be volunteering as a wildlife transporter to move those animals to rehabbers. Um, kids can volunteer to do, you know, supply drives. Like, you know, do, does your local rehabber need paper towels? Does she need or he need, you know, bedding for the crate? Whatever. Kids are great at finding stuff. Um, and then uh, obviously you're you know, the standard ways you help any nonprofit through donations or, you know, volunteering for events or whatever, all those things that every little bit helps. Leslie, we can't thank you enough for being on the show and sharing all of this. I mean, it was such a fun conversation, you know, just reflecting on bats, their role, the role that they play in society, culturally, but also from a biological standpoint. And, you know, just, you know, I think about Batman being a hero, but obviously what, you know, you and your colleagues are doing is very important as well. And, you know, thank you for that. Well, thank you. It's been wonderful being here. And thank you. Thank you for having this podcast to talk to people about how cool critters are and the people who help them. Hi, Anya. Welcome back Hi. to the show. Welcome back. You missed, honestly, this was one of those interviews. I feel like most of our interviews surprised me in some way. But this one really surprised me. You know, I was expecting us to have a conversation that was heavily focused on maybe some of the more scientific, you know, biological aspects of bats. And while we did talk about that, I felt like I learned more about just like the personalities of bats. You know, the fact that bats are so dynamic as animals. I, I honestly, I had no idea that they have these incredible social structures, typically led by women. I had no idea that they're such great moms. I had no idea that the babies will hang out together for a while, you know, even after they've learned how to fly. It was just, I, I have to say, I am charmed by bats, Anya. That's how I feel after that. Interesting. Interesting. Would you say bats are feminist? You know, they kind of sounded a bit feminist. You know, they stand up for themselves. Um, I think my favorite you know, tidbit from the conversation is that bats mate in the fall, which probably explains why they're fluttering around old houses in October. You know, it's, they got a lot going on, really busy, uh, excited. And then the moms, they don't actually give birth until the spring. So they spend all winter just doing whatever they want on their own. It's like, oh yeah, I'm going to go south for the, uh, you know, the winter, go eat some warm weather bugs, or, you know, I'm just going to hang out and do my own thing. And I don't need, you know, no mans in my life. They, uh, <laughs> they're, they're pretty impressive. Um, okay. This sounds great. I mean, if, if I were to ever have children, that's how I would do it as far as just like, all right, by kiddos, you'll see me in a, f I mean, it sounds like what, do the back kids just like flutter away after a while, after the moms have done their thing and they're after like, all right, time while. to party? Yeah, no, but they, they actually, they sort of cling to her for a little bit longer once no, they learn to fly. No, I wouldn't like that. No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but if it were Ruthie, you would approve of this. I would, if it was Ruthie, I, I would approve of that. So there's this thing that during the winter in, in, in human world and the and and our world where uh I think they call it like hitching season or something like that. I'm oh, probably yeah, yeah. messing it up, but like during no, the that's winter right. cupping, cupping season where they where people will uh find a partner during like the fall winter because it's like they don't want to be cold and lonely during winter time and then come springtime <laughs> it's like okay bye bye. Uh, I, I wonder if uh bats invented that. They might and have. And we don't even know it. 
They they might have. I mean, the other thing that blew my mind was there are 42 different types of bats in North America. Yeah, different species of bats. That blew my mind. Um, really interesting. And I especially enjoyed hearing sort of Leslie's you know, sort of quick takes on why bats have been demonized in our society so much, sort of ranging from these, you know, old ideas of them being blood-sucking vampires to today, everyone thinks that bats have rabies and oh. the percentage of bats that actually have them is pretty small. And so they've been associated with disease and all these horrible things, as we also know from COVID, but the number of them who actually are carrying those types of diseases that would affect humans is pretty small. Interesting. Interesting. And as far as blood sucking, do they actually suck blood or <laughs> did you guys Real get to that? Or <laughs> Only the that ones complete? that live in your apartment. <laughs> Uh, we actually, you know what? We did not get into vampire bats. I didn't want to go to camp with it, but in retrospect, see, this is why I need you around. This is why you need to be my co-host forever because that we probably should have talked about the blood sucking vampires. I did watch the whole Twilight series for the first time recently, so maybe I got my vampire fix from that. You can recap that one to me too, the way that you <laughs> recap the interview because I don't need to watch Twilight. <laughs> We'll save that one for um, another time. But I really hope that everyone who's listening, you enjoyed the conversation. You know, again, we're starting to wind down with our Halloween animals, but we thought we'd save the the bat for last. I like it. Everyone, before you go trick-or-treating, make sure that you like and subscribe to our podcast on Spotify and iTunes. Subscribe to our newsletter where you can sign up at thefurfluencers.com. Follow us on Instagram at thefurfluencers. And you can give us money on Patreon too if you feel so inclined. We also accept treats for our dogs. Bye.